All right, we're departing from John today, taking something of a break, so to speak, uh, and hopefully I'll find the right place. This seems to be one of those days when your brain is somewhere else. I'm sure you've had those days. My brain doesn't seem to be in sync with where I'm supposed to be today, uh, whether it's playing guitar or anything else. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, if it's good, it's because God the Holy Spirit is at work, uh, not because of me. We're in First Peter chapter 1. This is, uh, Jaden was asking me uh, not too long ago, what's your favorite book of the Bible, Dad? And I couldn't give one, but this is one of them. Uh, and eventually we're going to preach through this, because uh, I think this is a very significant letter, especially when it talks about those who are exiles, the elect exiles. That's an important thing, I think, for us to keep in mind as we live in a culture that is shifting farther and farther from the gospel. But today, just part of chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, as Ezekiel learned, you are the one who can make dry bones live. As Paul learned, you are the one who can make dead men live. And so we ask that that same powerful spirit would be at work among us this morning. Help us to see the benefits that we receive from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we may see how his resurrection matters not just then, but today every day. And in doing so, that you would root us and ground us in Christ this morning. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. One of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. Unfortunately, this, this is the week they're showing Forrest Gump on AMC nonstop. Uh, but oftentimes it's Shawshank, and I can't resist Whenever I'm, I'm surfing the channels and I'm on AMC and there's Shawshank, I've got to stay for a while. I've got to watch a little bit. What intrigues me about this movie is that it's a story about hope. That's really the focus of the movie. Yes, it takes place in a prison, uh, and there's a lot of sin that takes place in this prison, but ultimately it is a story about hope. Hope lost, hope found. 
There's one scene in particular that stands out, and I watched it again this morning. And uh, that takes place after one of the old men who had been in prison his entire adult life. And he's now elderly, and he suddenly gets released. And he doesn't know what to do with himself. He, he, he's, he's only known those walls and those bars and those guards for decades. He gives up hope and ends up killing himself. When news travels back to the prison about Brooks's death, Andy is shaken. And he, he decides to break the rules for a moment. And he begins to blare Mozart out into the courtyards. And, of course, that earns him a week in the hole in isolation. So the scene that I'm really concerned about is the one that picks up when Andy gets out and he sits down for lunch with the other inmates that are his friends. And they welcome him back and they start talking about Mozart because the other guy's like, you know, Hank Williams. And, uh, <clears throat> and Andy starts talking about the, the, the fact that doing time alone was not a hardship to him because he had Mozart in his head and in his heart. And these guys really didn't quite get that. And it almost kind of pick it up. When he's talking about this, he goes, there's something inside you that they can't get to that's yours. And his good friend Red asks him, what are you talking about? Hope. Red pauses. He's really kind of, think, struck. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You'd better get used to that idea. And Andy replies, like Brooks did. And that was the only time that we see Red angry with his friend Andy. The very next scene in the movie is Red coming before the parole board as his hopes get dashed again. That was why for him, hope was a dangerous thing because it seemed like hope would never be fulfilled. Hope can be a very dangerous thing, both dangerous positively, dangerous negatively. If your hopes are in the wrong thing, very bad. It's dangerous. It shipwrecks the soul. If your hope is in the right thing, then it's dangerous in the sense that it can turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about hope this morning. A big idea this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus gives birth to a new way to live. Let's start with the idea that Peter has here that the resurrection gives us new life. Peter starts off, he's rejoicing over the benefits of the gospel. He just laid out some in the introduction, and he's about to get into some more, and it's almost like, it's almost like Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He's almost just bursting forth with praise as he thinks about these things. But he thinks about these things within the context of great difficulty. Because he's writing a letter to people, he says, that are... And elect exiles, they're like fish out of water. They're experiencing all sorts of persecution. And he wants them to have the right hope because their earthly hopes are often being dashed. And so Peter starts here in this amazing place. And he starts off with this notion that according to his great mercy... 
And we can't lose sight of this as the foundation for everything that's about to flow for the rest of this passage. It's in light of and according to His great mercy. It's the motive that God had as He did these amazing things that Peter is going to talk about. And it's mercy precisely because we are guilty of Adam's sin. In our own sin, we have earned the wages of sin, which is death. But He's merciful. God's great mercy. Not His fleeting, slight mercy, but His great mercy. Charles Spurgeon said this, You never have to drag mercy out of Christ as money from a miser. Ever tried to get money out of a miser? It's really hard. You don't have to work at it to get mercy out of God. It's available free because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so we who have earned death are going to receive something far better. We've received not just pardon, but life. Because Peter continues, He caused us... Okay, that's the idea. God is at work. God is doing this. According to His great mercy, God is working. He caused us specifically to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, while we have earned death, we receive life. (laughs) A total reversal of what ought to be and owing all to the free mercies of God. But we see here from this this phrase that Peter uses is that regeneration is connected to the resurrection of Christ. In other words, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, there is no such thing as regeneration, and therefore there is no such thing as salvation. We often talk about this in light of the cross. If there's no cross, there's no forgiveness. But just as the same way, there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. If there's no resurrection, all we have is a man killed by the Roman Empire. That's it. And that does nobody any good. And so it's because of the resurrection that we're able to experience regeneration. No resurrection, no regeneration. Now, there have been a number of attacks upon the resurrection in recent years. And this is actually no new thing, but it continues on. And there's, sometimes there are new arguments against it. <coughs> and what many people don't quite grasp is that there was essentially no one who believed that God would raise someone from the dead. Now, the Pharisees and other uh, conservative Jews believed that at the end of time that there would be a bodily resurrection. But this idea of something, someone in the middle of time who was dead, who comes to life, they didn't believe that. Most of the people outside of Israel, they basically believed that when you died, life stopped. That was it. There was nothing. Or if there was an afterlife, it was more of a sort of spiritual existence. There, there was not a physical existence that would happen. And so... This, this idea of a physical existence at the, after the end of time was particular only to the Jews, but this notion that there would be one man who could be raised to life physically, bodily, was foreign to the worldview of even the Pharisees. They didn't believe that would happen. Neither did the apostles. 
as we heard from the end of uh, <clears throat> from the gospel reading this morning, even when they went in and, and saw that the tomb was empty, they did not understand yet what it meant that he must be raised. Every time it talk, Jesus talks about it in the gospels about he's going to die in the third, and on the third day he'll be raised again. There's these these comments. They're so honest, these apostles, about their own foolishness in the past. That's a lesson for us. Okay, we can be we can be honest about our own foolishness in the past. But they said they still didn't get it. Jesus told this to them many times, and they didn't quite understand what in the world he was getting at. And so when Jesus is nailed to the cross, Peter is undone. He has lost his hope because he does not understand this fact of the bodily resurrection in three days. He thinks Jesus is dead, end of story, done deal. My hopes that he was the Messiah have just been killed. The death of Jesus put his hopes to death. He knew what it was like to have his hope in the wrong place or in the wrong thing. He understood that. But God did the unthinkable and the unpredictable. Peter says that he was a witness to this. I love what Blaise Pascal says. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Meaning, anyone can lie. But no one dies taking their lie to the grave. All but one of the apostles were executed for their testimony regarding the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only John died of old age. If this was a lie, I don't know why they kept it. (laughs) Their life was on the line. This is an indication to us that they really believe this happened. That there really was an empty tomb. They didn't steal a body out out of the grave. Jesus really rose. This unique event challenges almost everybody's worldview. The denials of the resurrection we don't really usually understand. They, they rest on a presuppositional foundation that people have. And sometimes it's the closed universe. The idea that that can't, just, that can't happen. People can't be raised from the dead. And, you know, usually we should often say, well, we aren't saying that everyone's raised from the dead in time. But this one was. Why should that be, be you know, out of the ordinary, when we recognize that he was the God-man. <laughs> Why is it impossible for God to raise himself from the dead? It's foolish to think he can't do such a thing. And so the objections that are made, you, that people have, are usually driven by a worldview in which such a thing cannot happen. And we just have to recognize that as we talk with people. But Tim Keller notes that the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching about anything, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, then you must accept his teaching, whether you like it or not. Because he is who he said he was. He is God who became man. 
excuse me, as we talked about in John chapter 3, this idea of regeneration is that we have here as Presbyterians is one in which regeneration produces faith. Faith doesn't produce regeneration. Dead men, in other words, can't believe. But we recognize that we've been born again. God caused us to be born again. He did this. It's not something that we do ourselves, but faith comes with it. So we, have, we end up having a faith in Christ. That's similar to what we see in Romans chapter 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so the faith, the particular faith that the Holy Spirit produces in us through regeneration is a faith not just in Christ crucified, but Christ resurrected for our justification. And so the resurrection of Jesus had immediate consequences, and one of those consequences was that we could be born again. Not only that, but the resurrection unites us to a living hope. He says, we were born again into a living hope. That's why I talked about Red and Andy. Hope is about our expectations for the future. The hope that Peter is talking about here is about life. It's about eternal life. But it has a life to itself. I think most of us have heard the, the famous words of Jesse Jackson. Keep hope alive. I think it was Jesse. Keep hope alive. This is not a hope that we have to keep alive. This is a hope that is alive. This is a hope that keeps us alive. Through the midst of difficulty, through the midst of affliction and and persecution, this is a hope that keeps people alive. Just think of Brooks. Lost hope, filled with despair, committing suicide. He had no hope. But we do. And we have a hope that keeps us alive. This hope keeps us alive, particularly as we meditate upon its reality, and that's part of why Peter writes this. He needs to remind them of this hope that is active within them, to to bring them back to their senses, so to speak, because they're beaten down, they're discouraged. They're on the verge of giving up an earthly hope. And so he comes alongside them to remind them about this great hope, this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ so that they'll keep moving forward, so they will not give up. Paul was similar. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. To this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so we are born again into a living hope. But Peter doesn't stop there. There's a parallel phrase that erupts that begins with, we're also born into an inheritance. So that that idea of being born again, that idea of 
also connects with it not just regeneration, but adoption. We've been put into a new family, so we have a living hope, and with that living hope, we also have an inheritance, a promised inheritance that can be relied upon. In other words, you can't have one without the other. Okay? The resurrection and therefore regeneration is producing both the hope and the inheritance. There is none of you who believes who has only one. It's not like Steve can say, I got the hope, and Eric can go, I got the inheritance. You both have both. You need to reckon with that. Rejoice in that. Be strengthened by that. We have both of these things. Now, remember, Paul is writing to these elect exiles of the dispersion. And so most likely these are Jewish Christians who have been who are scattered throughout these various regions that that Paul uh, sorry Peter mentions. So there should be a thought here about the hope of inheritance that all Jews had. And that was the promised land. That ought to kind of ring and and this and, and, and kind of something ought to go there. And so he qualifies this inheritance in three ways that are incredibly significant when we think about what happened to the promised land. He says that this inheritance that we have been born again into by the resurrection is imperishable. Just as we have been born again of imperishable seed, as Peter will say later on in this letter, this inheritance is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed like Canaan was. By the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, soon to be by the Romans, making it essentially an inhabitable place for a period of time. Our inheritance is imperishable. No army can come and squash the land and raise it and destroy all of its crops and people. Not only that, but it is undefiled. Meaning that it cannot be polluted by sin like Canaan was. When you read the prophets, they're looking back and they're remembering that Israel received the promised land because the sin of the Canaanites had become full. They had polluted the land. God was going to purify the land and put Israel in it. And what Israel ended up doing was polluting it again with their own sin. Our sin affects not just us, but the places we live. And that's what happened. And Peter is saying, this inheritance can't be polluted by your sin. Oh, you'll still sin. But you can't destroy the inheritance. It's also unfading in its glory. Its glory continues while we see that place that Canaan was ravaged not just by armies, but by drought and pestilence and wild animals. And so Paul, sorry, Peter, Peter wants us, just like them, to understand that our eternal inheritance is not subject to any shift or change. It's not subject to inflation. My, uh, IRA, my Roth IRA is, <laughs> but not this inheritance. It's not subject to taxes, to theft, to fraud, to natural disaster. 
It's not subject to any of these things. Nothing can take it away. Nothing can destroy it. And as if to add to that, as if that was not enough, almost like those commercials, you know, it's infomercials. And there's more. It's kept in heaven for you. Peter says that God watches it. He keeps watch over it. It's safer than Fort Knox. Because it's being watched by him who never slumbers, who never sleeps. Who's never distracted like I am. It's secure. It's safe. It's not our responsibility to to watch over it. It's his. We can relax. We don't have to be like the, the man or the woman who's always looking at their investments online for their retirement. How's it doing? How's the market going today? We don't need to fret. We don't need to worry because it's secure, because it's in Christ. But there's a flip side, so to speak, a good flip side. That's being kept in heaven for you. And then he tells us who you are. Who by God's power, are being guarded through faith. So not only is he watching over our inheritance, but Peter says that we are being guarded by God. And he's using a term that's often used in a military context. And so the idea sort of as a camp, and the camp is being, being guarded by a, you know, the forces outside the camp so that nothing can get in to destroy those who are in the camp. This is not the idea of a prison, although it can be used. In that, is that context as well. They're being guarded, not by their own power, God's power. It's that idea that led Paul at the end of Romans 8 to just glory in that thought that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not famine, not armies, not nakedness, nothing can separate us from that love of God because we are being guarded by God's power. And now there's a means here because he says through faith. Now, up to this point, we're not doing anything. Is God doing all of this stuff? And yet here Peter brings us in this, this idea that as you trust, you are guarded. As you entrust yourself to Him, He is the one who is going to guard over you. Similar to to Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing or while you believe, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There's an instrumental means that's here. Trusting God and His promises in Jesus Christ. So we're guarded by God as we trust in Him. So our our new life through the resurrection is characterized by a living hope as well as an inheritance. Which brings us to the third thing that we need to reckon with, with from this passage this morning. And that is that the resurrection enables us to rejoice in suffering. You see, one of the resurrection benefits, or all of them, help us to rejoice though you have been grieved 
by various trials. Rejoicing and grief are not opposed to each other, but here they mysteriously occur simultaneously. They are rejoicing in the midst of their grieving. We see something similar in Christ. Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus is about to walk. <clears throat> See, through the, in the Garden of Eden, it talks about his great grief, not Eden, Gethsemane. Wrong garden. Eden was good. Gethsemane, not so good. That same word for griefs is used there. And he poured out his soul in anguish. And so that's not sort of, you know, that, that idea is it's a heavy sort of thing. These afflictions produce great immersion, emotional turmoil within us at times. And Jesus experienced that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet he had a, a sight of the hope that was before him, the joy that was before him. And he, he continued to press through the affliction that he was about to experience and in the, in the grief he was experiencing as part of that affliction. And so we can too. We, we recognize that these trials cause us to experience grief. We know that. We know about grief. One of our sisters passed away the other day. There's grief. Some of you have children who have lost their way in profound ways. You know grief. We know the grief of losing jobs, being out of work. Many of you know the grief of being in a marriage that is floundering or gone belly up. There is grief in this world. And the Gospel does not deny this grief, but offers us hope in the midst of that grief. Why do we experience these trials? Why do we experience these hardships? They test the genuineness of your faith. In other words, they reveal what really matters to us. Because suffering is, a, is really about the, the delay or loss of our earthly hopes. If we live long enough, we're going to experience profound loss. The loss of spouses, children, vocation, freedom. It, all of this, they'll find us no matter what, who we are. We will face loss. And it's when you lose it that you realize whether it was an ultimate thing for you or not. Is it a sustainable loss? Or is it a devastating loss? And that has to do with how much you were banking on that. How much of your hope was tied up in what you just lost. And if, that, and if your life is tied up in that, it's devastating. Job, a man who knows about loss, contains a few statements like this from chapter 8. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. It will come to nothing. 
Job 41. God is speaking to Job. And behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of Leviathan. All earthly hopes, all false hopes get destroyed in the face of what is to come. But genuine faith, genuine hopes, this living hope that we've talked about, the genuine faith is purified. The dross gets removed. We know about purifying gold. You put a big fire under it and it melts and all the gunk comes to the surface and you skim the thing off. That's what affliction does. It's like we're in the furnace and the impurities that are still there in our faith, and we all have impurities in our faith. There's no one here whose faith is perfect. There's no one here whose hopes are perfect. The gunk rises to the surface and God clears it away. And so increasingly, our faith and our hope are being purified by these afflictions if it's genuine. Now, if we have fool's gold for our hopes and our faith, destroyed by the fire, not purified by the fire, it hurts, brothers and sisters, to go through the fires of affliction for the purification of our faith. It hurts. We don't deny that. But we have a reason to rejoice even in the midst of the grief. Because we, are, we know that our salvation is secure. We know it is being kept for us. We know that it will be revealed when Christ is revealed. And so while we ache, we also sing. And we sound crazy when we do it. I think. Here's better news. Jesus' suffering for us on our behalf means that our suffering is not punishment, but our suffering is purification. He has taken the punishment for us, but He still provides affliction for the means of purification that we are trained in righteousness, as it talks about in Hebrews chapter 12. So the Spirit that comes to us because of Christ's resurrection, the Spirit which causes us to be born again, this Spirit empowers us to persevere and rejoice even though we're in tears and pain. And an amazing thing happens that Peter alludes to in chapter 3. People see that we have hope because there's something different about how we suffer. And Peter says, always be ready. Make Christ Lord in your heart that you may give a reason for the hope you have. And this is the hope. <laughs> this is the hope he's talking about. It has an evangelistic purpose, but usually one that's prompted by the curious person who sees how your suffering is different than other people's because you are not destroyed. Our living hope becomes evident. 
And this results in praise and glory both to God and to us. That's one of the marvelous things about this passage. <coughs> it's not just that God gets praised, but the, uh, the idea here, let me find the right place, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's these faithful people who are receiving praise and glory from God. In other words, well done, good and faithful servant. He's pleased when we persevere, even though he's the one who preserved us. Astounding, isn't it? So hope is a dangerous thing. It is dangerous when our hopes are on the wrong thing. Because false hopes end in despair and destruction. But the resurrection of Christ brings us a living hope, a sure hope that depends on Him who conquered death. Our salvation is secure, waiting to be revealed. Our inheritance is unfading, waiting to be revealed. Our earthly circumstances can't take these things away because they aren't based on our earthly circumstances. But they're based upon Christ, crucified and resurrected. It is Christ, through the Spirit, who strengthens us to persevere with joy in the midst of sorrow. So where does your hope lie? Is your hope in a dangerous place or a secure place? Is your hope making you a safe person for the world or a dangerous person for the world? Because you believe that he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, ask us, I ask that you'd help us to remember that this is not just an idea that, that we believe. It's a historical fact for us. We believe it to be true in space and in time. But it's meant to have consequences that ripple through lives and families and generations and peoples. So as we ponder the resurrection of Jesus from the dead this, the rest of this day, remind us of some of these benefits. Help us to dwell on the living hope. Help us to dwell on our inheritance so that we could face the circumstances we have that we, that we go through. So though we may cry, we would also rejoice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.